So good morning. How y'all doing? It is good uh, to be with you all. I'm excited to begin our new sermon series uh, called Created to Need. It's going to run through the remainder of September and then all of October. So um, looking forward uh, to this. And uh, throughout this sermon series, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the nitty-gritty of the human condition. What does it mean to be a human being? What are the core needs of the human being? How are these needs met? In preparation for this series, uh, this, earlier this year, I read Ernest Becker's book, Denial of Death. Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist from the 1970s, an agnostic. Um, if you had an anthropology class in college or a counseling class or therapy class, you might have be familiar with him. But he wrote this. He says, only gods can take in the whole of creation because they alone can make sense of it, know what it is all about and for. But as soon as a man lifts his nose from the ground and starts sniffing at eternal problems like life and death, the meaning of a rose or a star cluster, then he is in trouble. So we're going to be getting ourselves into trouble uh, over the next eight weeks because we're going to be sniffing around at eternal problems eternal things about what it means to be a human being. And we're going to explore the seven core needs that make up the human condition. Our need for dignity, our need for love, purpose, guidance, peace, life, and hope. And each week, starting next week, we're going to look at each one of these seven basic needs. And what we'll see is that these needs are non-negotiable. So mom and dad, I need a puppy, would not make it on to the list of the seven core basic needs of the human being. But something as basic to our humanity as the need for love or dignity or purpose, what it means to be a human being, we'll see as we look at the scriptures, is that to be a human being is to be a creature that is loved, to be a creature with dignity, to be a creature with purpose, guidance, peace, life, hope. To not have these things begins to dehumanize us. So we're going to look at these core basic needs. And in our, I think we go through our lives scratching around intuitively to find these needs and to have them be met in our life. In our most desperate moments, we will literally risk our very lives in order to find these needs and have them be met. We even can go so far as to kill to have these needs met. Becker, I think, is right as far as it goes. Left to ourselves, it's impossible for us to discern the very depths of the human condition. But mercifully, God has not left us to ourselves. He's given us his word. He's given us the scriptures that spell out who we are, who he is, what our world is, and how we are to live in this world. So throughout our series, we're going to begin each sermon looking at Genesis 1 and 2, which is the early pages of the Bible. If you've ever tried to do the Bible in a year reading plan, you've at least gotten through Genesis 1 and 2 before you've petered out somewhere probably in Leviticus. So hopefully these are familiar texts to us. If you're new uh, to Christianity or to the church, you haven't read these texts, uh, we'll be introducing them in the coming weeks. But we're going to look at these beginning chapters of the Bible because they frame up for us the basic biblical framework, the basic needs and starting assumptions about humanity and our core needs. So we start at the beginning of the scriptures to look at the core of the human condition. But today, 
We're going to be looking at Psalms 104. Psalm 104 is where we'll start our series that will provide kind of a framework for thinking about what it means to be created to need. And as we're going to see, Psalm 104 is clearly indebted in many ways to Genesis 1 and 2. So we're going to see a lot of themes that tie in with what is to come uh, in the coming weeks. So today's sermon, I want to lay the groundwork for everything that is to come by answering two basic questions. So here's the two questions, two-point sermon. What does it mean to be human? That's the first question we want to answer. And then how does God factor into that reality? So if you're here as a guest, you're here as a, maybe came with family or friends, perhaps you're not a Christian, but you're interested in exploring the Christian faith, let me invite you to listen in as we move through the answer to these two questions. You can think of this a little bit like a jacket that's being presented to you. You can try it on, see how it fits, and see how does the Bible and how does the Christian, fame, the Christian faith articulate and put together the human condition? Does it ring true with your experience? I think one of the most persuasive things about, the relig- about uh, Christianity is that it has tremendous explanatory power to make sense of the world as we experience it. So I invite you to listen in uh, to that. Well, Psalm 104 is our text, so let's uh, make our way there. If you did not bring a Bible, you can find a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Perhaps you can get one on your phone. Page 503 is the uh, page number for the Bible in the pew rack. But let's stand together, and I will read Psalm 104. You listen in and read along uh, as I move through this text. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with the light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains." At your rebuke they fled, at the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. 
When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. May be seated. So to begin, first question that we want to answer from Psalm 104 is what does it mean to be human? There are probably a lot of ways to answer that question, what does it mean to be human? But we want to answer it from this psalm. And what does it mean to be human in this psalm? It means that human beings are creatures of need, just like the rest of creation. If you're familiar with the opening passages of the Bible in Genesis, you can see quickly how these themes in Psalm 104 are tying into and alluding to and echoes of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We see the creation of the light. We see the creation of the foundations of the earth, the seas, the moon, the stars, the rain, the plants, and the animals, the great sea monster, Leviathan. There's a reference to the breath of God, the dust of the earth. All of these are drawing from the imagery that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. So a lot of things that are parallels between the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 and then also here in Psalm 104. But there is a major difference, and scholars have long noted the similarities between these two texts in the Bible, but also have noted one of the major differences between Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 104. And that's the role or the place of humanity in these two texts. Again, in Genesis 1 and 2, if you can recall that to mind, Genesis 1 and 2 lays out the six days of creation, and and as the days of creation move forward, life becomes more complex and more involved, and, and it culminates with the creation of humanity as the apex of God's handiwork, humanity made in the image of God. And so, the way that Genesis 1 and 2 highlights humanity is to present humanity unique and exalted above the created order. But Psalm 104 takes a complementary, not a contradictory, but a complementary route in looking at humanity. In Psalm 104, humanity is placed within the created order, right between the wild donkeys and the rock badgers, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air. Humanity is presented as just one more creature that lives in a position of need before the creator. Verse 27, I think, makes this most poignant. If you look, Psalm 104, verse 27, the psalmist has just recounted all of creation, all the different uh, elements of creation, both material uh, and and then also uh, those that are living. And he says in verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. And it might be easy to think what the psalmist is doing is the psalmist is kind of patronizingly standing above all the animal world and saying, ah, all of these look to you, Lord. But that's not what he's doing. He's already placed himself within the created world, within and amongst all the creatures. And so when he says, these all look to you, he might as well be saying, and I think he is saying, we all look to you. 
All of us creatures, Lord, we look to you to give us our food in due season. Genesis 1 and 2 exalts humanity, teaches us of our uniqueness, and we're going to be spending a fair amount of time in that in the coming weeks. But Psalm 104 humbles humanity, teaches us of our creatureliness and limitations and our need. Human beings do have unique dignity in God's creation, but when it comes to neediness, human beings are no different than the rest of creation, no different than the birds and the grass and the beasts. But we don't come to terms with our neediness very easily. If I introduced you to a friend, I said, oh, this is my friend, he's very needy. You wouldn't be like, oh, I just can't wait to get to know him and give him my cell phone number so that we can just be on good terms with each other all the time. We don't come to terms with our neediness very easily. To be needy is to be vulnerable, to be exposed, to risk being taken advantage of. We don't like being needy. Familiar, if you're familiar with Friedrich Nietzsche, he was a German uh, 19th century uh, atheistic philosopher, and he hated Christianity. And the reason he hated Christianity is because he felt that it valorized weakness and need. He called it a kind of slave morality or slave mentality that, that exalted in weakness. He, he hated that. He says this about Christianity in one of his books that he wrote against Christianity. He says, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great intrinsic depravity, the one great instinct of revenge for which no means are venomous enough or secret, subterranean, or small enough. I call it the one immortal blemish upon the human race. So reading between the lines there uh, <laughs> with that, I don't think he cared for the Christian faith. But he hated Christianity in one sense for good reason, because Christianity exalts and pushes forward and insists upon human neediness. And Nietzsche thought that the way forward for the human race was not to embrace neediness, but to embrace power. But if we're honest with ourselves, even as Christians, we can be rather Nietzschean in the way that we think about need and weakness and power. No one likes to be needy. We deny our need. We deny our vulnerability. We hide our pain as a form of self-protection. So I don't know uh, how you are. I don't uh, enjoy shopping for clothing. Uh, it seems invariably that if I go to the store and I try something on, I'm convinced it works, but then as soon as I get home, and not just as soon as I get home, as soon as I've washed it, that's when you realize it's just not going to work, and then I never wear it again. And so going to the store is fraught with anxiety for me because I just know I'm probably going to fail in this purchase. Just recently, uh, I went over to Men's Warehouse, and I needed to buy some dress shirts. And you might think, looking at me, that I'm a man that knows my way around the dress shirt. And you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking such a thing. But in any case, uh, I went into Men's Warehouse, and the nice sales guy comes over. He's got the measuring tape you know, around his shoulder. And he says, can I help you? And reflexively, instinctively, before even processing his question, I say, no, I'm fine. I'm just looking. When the reality is, I'm not fine, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm going to need his help in four minutes, I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask him to help me. But there's something within us, maybe it's not shopping for clothes for you, but there's something within us where when we're asked if we need help, we don't want to admit it. 
Because to, to say that we need help leaves us open and exposed and vulnerable. And I think as I've reflected upon this for this sermon, why do I not admit to the sales guy that I need help when I go to men's warehouse? Is because I don't want to be taken advantage of. And I think if I tell him I need help, he's going to like take me to the most expensive like dress shirts that I don't know anything about and he's going to, you know, whatever, right? Because if I say I need help, I'm vulnerable and I don't trust. I'm insecure about what's going to happen going forward in this encounter. And so when we won't acknowledge that we need help, it's not just pride. We can think about like what is at the core of pride, of sinful pride. At the core of sinful pride is fear. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be thought of as weak. I don't want to be taken advantage of. And so I put an exterior of strength and invulnerability upon myself to self-protect myself and to keep myself from appearing weak so that I can't be taken advantage of. At the root of all sinful pride is fear. The denial of our needs is driven by fear. And human beings are plagued by a self-protective pride that stands, and here's the irony, that stands in the way of our own flourishing. When I go to the store to buy a dress shirt, I do need help, and I will flourish if I let the sales guy help me find something that actually fits rather than trying to do it on my own, go home, and then decide that I'm never going to wear that shirt again. That the acknowledgement of our need and the asking for help is, in fact, the pathway into our own flourishing. But we are plagued by a self-protective pride that stands in the way of us flourishing. How many marriages and friendships turn cold because we refuse to acknowledge the need that we have of one another? We don't want to open ourselves up and be vulnerable, admit that we have need. And so we put on the exterior of strength, the exterior of pride, and all we do is we isolate ourselves from the things that we really need and desire. How many parents and teens move through their, the dynamics of their relationship in the same way? Parents wanting to put on a projection of strength, not to admit that they have needs. Teens, of course, making a career of this with their parents. Or how about in the workplace? How much wasted effort happens in the workplace because we won't acknowledge to our team members, our employers, that we need help with things? Because we're afraid if we project or acknowledge our weakness that we'll be taken advantage of or marginalized. When in reality, when in reality, it is through the acknowledgement of our need that we receive the help. When we try to hide our need, though, it leaks out in all sorts of unhealthy ways. Because we have these needs, we can't deny the reality that they're there, though we try to cover them up and plaster them down with a proud exterior or an independent exterior. But when we do, it comes out in passive-aggressive ways, or we suppress for so long that it explodes in anger, or we just go binge-watch another season of Netflix to numb the sense of unease that we feel. Or if things get desperate enough, we swing erratically in the opposite direction. We can't deny the needs any longer. We cling desperately, tenaciously, to any and every lifeline. We smother those around us with deep needs that are impossible for any mortal person to satisfy. We demand an attentiveness of our spouse or our children or our friends that only serves to drive them away further from us. And then we anxiously bounce from person to thing to person to thing in a futile effort to satisfy all of these deep needs. Some of, us, I, some of us, I think, have 
this propensity more than others. All of us have it to some degree. Some of us make a whole career out of self-protection and projecting strength. Others of us aren't as good at it or don't do it as tenaciously, but all of us do it to some degree. And there's even a kind of Christianized version of this, a Christianized version of need denial that masquerades as faith, but really is just another form of self-protection. Perhaps we've encountered some place of disappointment, some hurt in a relationship, perhaps, And as Christians, we tell ourselves this, well, I don't care about this or that pain because I have God, and that's all that really matters. And we don't let ourselves enter into the disappointment and the hurt, and we bring God in not as a way of meeting or addressing the need, but as denying the fact and not having to deal with the need at all. But how can God meet us and comfort us in our pain and disappointment that we won't acknowledge not even to ourselves? And how can we receive from him what we won't admit that we need? Some of us need to get real with the Lord about the disappointing and hurtful things and places of need that we have in our lives. So on this first point, the question is, how easy is it for you to embrace your creatureliness? How easy is it for you to accept the Bible's picture of you as a creature that stands in need not self-sufficient, not autonomous, not independent, but a creature that needs not only God, but needs the things of this world. How easy is it for you to admit that you stand in need, even on your best day, on your most independent moment, your most independent day as a creature, that you still stand in need? Do you reflexively refrain from showing weakness, reflexively refrain from asking for help. So what does Psalm 104 teach us about ourselves? It teaches us at least this, that we are creatures who need. But getting in touch with our neediness can be scary because when we put ourselves out there, it's no guarantee, in fact, that everyone is going to receive our neediness well. We're also scared of needs that we tend to despise it when we see it in others. So getting in touch with our neediness can be scary, especially for those of us who have been hurt in the past when we have made ourselves vulnerable. So how do we move forward with what the Bible says about being creatures of need, recognizing that neediness is, in fact, is a position of vulnerability, which leads to our next point. Because if all the Bible had to say about the human condition is that we were needy, well, that wouldn't be much hope. But the Bible says, Psalm 104 says, not only that we are creatures of need, But the major theme of Psalm 104 is that our needs are met in God. This is the the good news part of this psalm. The primary point of Psalm 104 is not merely that we need, but that our needs are met by God. Genesis 1 and 2 highlights the creation of the material world, how the material world came into existence by the hand of God. Psalm 104 highlights the dependence of the material world on God. The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is creator. The point of Psalm 104 is that God is the sustainer of what he has created. So as we read through this psalm, we see that God is not some absent deity. He's not some divine creator that has made the world and then gone away like a watchmaker makes a watch and winds it up and then lays it down and walks away. 
that God is intimately involved with every aspect of his creation, that he's providing for every aspect of his creation. He gives water to the grass. He gives the grass to the beast. He gives the beast to the lions. He gives the birds of the air a home in the trees. He gives the seas for the creature to sport in. He gives to humanity the, the, the ground to till to produce fruit. He gives every creature what that creature needs for its surviving and its thriving. This emphasis on the provision of God reaches its climax in this psalm when we have this imagery that is again borrowed straight from Genesis 1 and 2 about the, the breath of God breathing out into, into the created world. In verse 30, the psalmist says, when you send forth your spirit, the word Spirit in Hebrew, it's the same word as breath. I think probably it would be better to translate it here as breath. The psalmist is saying, when you send forth your breath, he's alluding to when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, taking the dirt and turning it into something alive. When you breathe your breath upon creation, you renew the face of the earth. You bring life out of the earth. That all that we have as creatures is given to us by God, even our very life, our very breath. God breathes into it and sustains us. He is the sustainer of all that he has made. And the psalmist sees how God cares for all of creation, and he rests in the truth that God will likewise care for him. This is the point of the psalm. The psalmist sees how God cares for the wild donkeys and the rock badgers and the birds and Leviathan and the ocean. He sees how God cares for all of these creatures and he is resting and at peace believing that God also cares for him. The psalmist's recognition that he needs and that God supplies all of his needs is fundamentally a posture of faith. Note the praise and rejoicing that bookends these psalm, this psalm. He begins the psalm by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. He ends the psalm by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. The psalmist looks at the neediness of humanity, and it doesn't bring him to despair because he believes that God is the provider and the caretaker of all that he has made. So he is at peace with his neediness because he believes that his needs are met in God. It's a crucial insight to be gained from this psalm. Because if we don't believe that our needs are met in God, then we have to deny the needs. We can't be honest about our needs because to be needful is to open ourselves up to be vulnerable and there's no guarantee that that's going to go well. But the psalmist can acknowledge his neediness because he's confident that those needs will be met by his creator. Our family adopted a little girl from Ethiopia a number of years ago, and as we've learned more and more about adoption, one of the things that you see that is the, one of the, the challenges in, in adoption is, particularly in Ethiopia, there's so many children that are, that are living on the streets. Children should not have to live without families on the streets. And they're left to fend for themselves, and they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And, and they're, they're, they're having to layer on the self-protection, understandably, because of their living on the streets without the protection of a family. And when families adopt children that have spent the first five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of their lives living on the streets, these children, it's very difficult for them to transition into a, into a home where they now know that they're being cared for. 
because they've developed such a pattern of self-protection that even though they're now being provided for by a family that loves them, they, they can't let go of the need to self-protect, to hoard food, to, to act out in anger, to keep people away from hurting them. And I think as Christians, even as Christians, this can be our situation as well. We're out there alone in the world, as it were, left to our own devices, and that's a scary place to be. But we've been adopted into the family of God, and we have a father and a family that loves us. But it's very difficult for us sometimes to, to rest in that, to come to a place of peace, to trust that God is providing for us and taking care of for us. And so we live in the safety of God's family, but sometimes revert back to our old ways of self-defense and self-protection. But when we trust that God will meet our needs, we are freed up from seeking anxiously after our own self-interest. We don't have to chase anxiously after every glimmer of hope like a fearful child, afraid to be abandoned or not taken care of, uncertain that we are really safe. We can entrust ourselves to God, and then we can get on with enjoying the world that he has made. We can get on with being a blessing to the world that he has made. It's important to note here as we think about how God steps in to meet our needs, that God does not resolve our neediness by taking away our neediness, but rather by meeting our needs. I think sometimes this is where we get into that kind of Christianized version of independence. We think that somehow we have these needs for love, these needs for dignity, these needs for protection, and and that what God does is he kind of matures us to a place where we no longer need love. He matures us to a place where we no longer need dignity or approval or acceptance. But God doesn't, as you notice in this psalm, he doesn't meet the needs of the grass for water by taking away the grass's need for water. He meets the needs of the grass for water by giving the grass water. And the way that he meets the needs of humanity is not by raising up humanity into some sort of place where we no longer need things. He meets the needs of us by meeting our needs. He doesn't redress our need for love by making us so independent and self-sustaining that we no longer need love. He meets our needs for love by loving us. This is the point of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you can remember back to this in our Matthew sermon series. But Jesus is talking to his disciples and Jesus notes that all of those who don't know the care and protection of God, they run around through life chasing after all the things. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? And then Jesus says to the disciples, he says to them, he doesn't say to them, you know, you don't really need these things. These are petty things. These are just worldly things. He doesn't say that. What does he say to his disciples? He says, your heavenly father what does he say? Your heavenly father knows that you need them. That's what he says. He says, it's not the fact that you need these things isn't the problem. The problem for those that are living outside the care of the fathers, they think they have to provide these things for themselves. They're, they're scrambling around the world anxiously trying to provide these things for themselves. My children, your heavenly father, he knows that you need these things. You don't need to seek after these things so anxiously. He'll provide these things for you. You seek after the kingdom of God. Because God provides for you and he cares for you, you can be free to live your life into God's purposes and God's kingdom, to be a blessing in the world and to enjoy the world that God has made. 
Where do you doubt God's provision in your life? It's a question I think that all of us should pause and ponder. Where do you doubt God's provision in your life? Where are you afraid that he has overlooked your needs? Perhaps your need for love. Your need for an ordered world of safety. Your need to be noticed and appreciated. To not feel forgotten. Your need to be respected. It is not wrong to need these things. We were made to need these things. We are creatures. How could we not need these things? The problem is not that we need these things. The problem is when we believe or begin to believe that God won't provide our deepest needs. Sometimes God meets our needs in the here and the now through the things that he has made. You see that in the psalm, right? Like God, when he meets the needs of the beast of the field, he meets the beast of the field through the things that he has made, through the grass. He helps the birds through the trees that he has made. God meets our needs in the here and now through the things that he has made. Our need for love is met perhaps by a new friend. Our need for health is met by a skilled surgeon. These are blessings from God. He is, he is meeting our needs through the things that he has made. But sometimes God meets our needs with a promissory note, a pledge of what is to come. The reality is that in this world, not every need will be met in this life. Not every hurt will be healed in this life. But God has promised and given us a surety through Christ's resurrection that there is a world coming in which there will be no more sickness, nor crying, nor pain, where God will not wipe away human need, but he will meet every need. And where, not, where, he, will, where he will address every pain and every hurt will be healed. And so even though we go through life not having every need met, in all of its deepest ways here, we have the joy of knowing that God has promised to meet these needs in the kingdom to come. It's the hope of the resurrection when God makes all things new. And sometimes, in order to help us remember that God, not what he gives, is the ultimate source of blessing, he gives us himself directly, independent of his gifts. Or we could say it, like this, sometimes God, in his severe mercy, refrains from meeting our earthly needs by earthly means because he wants to remind us that he himself is the ultimate gift. What would it look like for the creatures of the world to think that because their needs are being met by the material things of the world that somehow they're independent of God? Run contrary to the entire thrust of the psalm. The needs of the creatures of the world are being met by the things of the world because God is giving the things of the world. Sometimes I think we can begin to claim God's gifts and rely upon them as though they were independent of God. And we begin to lose sight of the fact that God ultimately is the true source of joy. God ultimately is the true source of our blessing in this world. And God at times has to step in and he has to remove the gift to refocus us on the giver. 
He wants to bless us and he wants to grace us, but there is no blessing and there is no grace if we begin to think that this world, independent of God, can meet all of our needs. God is the one who meets our needs. So what does Psalm 104 teach us about being human? It teaches us that to be human is to need. And more importantly, and hopefully, it teaches us that God meets our needs. Nietzsche, who referred to Christianity as a slave morality, he was both scandalized and somewhat surprised that the slave morality of Christianity triumphed. Looking back into the, the, the Greco-Roman world out of which Christianity was birthed, the Greco-Roman world that prioritized power and dominance and imperial might, and somehow this slave mentality... This, this religion that emphasized weakness and had a crucified Lord came to a place where it overthrew the Roman Empire, became the dominant religion, and was the dominant religion in the Europe that Nietzsche wrote and lived in. And it scandalized him. But should we have expected anything else? This is what Jesus says happens in the world, that the pathway to victory is through defeat, that the pathway to blessing is through acknowledging our need. That the pathway to life is through death. That the way that we live is by taking up the cross of Christ and in faith believing like Jesus that God will meet all of our needs. And God does meet all of our needs. We are each of us full of need on our best day. On our absolute best day, prime of our life, as creatures at our apex, we are still in need of God at the height of our powers. But the reality is we do not live at the height of our powers. We don't live our best day every day. So many of the needs that we have and the deep places of pain that we try to self-protect and cover up are self-wrought because we've been living in the world out there on our own as creatures intuitively aware of our need and we have made poor and foolish choices to deal with those needs and we have just complicated our lives. And so we think maybe, yes, we're creatures of need. We know that all too well. And it's nice to know that God meets the needs of his creatures, but what about the needs of his creatures who screw up? What about the needs of his creatures that don't do it right, that don't live into the proper creatureliness that God has asked of us? Psalm 103 is a sister psalm of Psalm 104. We know that because in Psalm 103, it begins with, bless the Lord, O my soul, and ends with, bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 are the only two psalms in all of the psalms that begin and end with, bless the Lord, O my soul. And they've been put together here because they both have themes about the dependence of humanity upon the Creator. You see this uh, here in verse 15 of Psalm 103. Just look back a little bit in your Bible. Psalm 103 of verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. The frailty of human life. This is a theme in Psalm 103. But, but the frailty, this, the psalmist is, is so comforting in Psalm 103 because 
in our frailty, we, we make poor choices. We do bad things. We fall into patterns of sin. But look what Psalm 103 has to say about us frail creatures. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then listen to this, such a, such a word of comfort. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. God knows, he knows that we're dust, that we live independent lives, that we, we try to live independent lives that lead only to our own hurt. He is gracious and compassionate to us. Not just some sovereign creator that demands perfect obedience, but a tender father who remembers our frame, that we are but dust. And he comes to us with grace. He comes to us with compassion. He comes to us with forgiveness and love and mercy. Fundamentally, this mercy, the psalmist here doesn't really know the source of it. The mercy comes from God, but but what is the fount of this mercy? It won't be until the unfolding of redemptive history that we see with the coming of Christ, the Son of God, that he is the living embodiment of the mercy of God and that God's mercy extends to all of humanity through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and his death, his resurrection. He shows us that God cares for his own that God vindicates his children. And so we can have hope in the midst of our own trials and our own needs because we've seen that God has met the needs, the very real human needs of his son, Jesus Christ, has lifted him to a place of exaltation and that through Jesus, he lifts us too and we have forward looking to a hope and a day of exaltation. So this psalm, as we begin our sermon series, invites us to come into terms with the fact that we are creatures of need, but more significantly invites us to hope in the fact that God cares for his creation and provides for our needs. Throughout the remainder of the psalm, or the remainder of the sermon series, we're going to be looking at these, these core needs and about how God meets all of these needs. So I invite you uh, to come back and to be reflecting on these themes. I might encourage you to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Each week, we're going to be looking at these passages, looking at them from different angles each time. So it might be good to familiarize yourself with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But let's pray that the Lord would allow us to embrace our neediness, our need of each other, our need of God, our need of the things that he has made, and to trust that he supplies for us everything we need in his time and in his way. Amen? Father, thank you that you care for us in Christ. Thank you that we can come to terms with and stare in the face our own limitations, our own needs. We are not self-sustaining. We don't have it all figured out. We try to pretend. We try to posture. We try to project power. But deep inside, Lord, we're all just scared children. Help us to find our safety in you. But if we have come to you in Christ and are part of your family, help us to rest. Help us to rest in the truth that you care for us. You are caring for us. You know what we need. And we can be freed up to live 
into the enjoyment of this world that you have given and also the sure knowledge of the hope that you will provide everything that we need in your good time. Thank you for your son who makes all this possible. In his name we pray, amen.